morning. Talking about ties that bind. And there are a few ties as strong as family ties. We're going to think about Jesus and family ties. We don't have a lot of detail about what Jesus' life was like growing up, but the details we do have indicate that having a godchild in the house, literally a godchild, put a strain on family ties. Uh, if you have your worship folder, let's look at some scriptures that give us a snapshot of four or five different events in Jesus' life as relates to his family and the and the relationship that they enjoyed and didn't enjoy. Again, in Luke 2, when Jesus was 12, it was somewhat of a, not difficult to believe, a theological prodigy at this point. When he was 12 years old, Jesus was, they went up to the feast according to the custom After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. They looked for him, and then after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and was obedient to them. A theological prodigy, but at this point at age 12, Jesus knows that God is his father. However, he also honors his earthly mother and father and submits to them. At some point over the next years, Joseph passes away. And then comes a time when Jesus hangs up his work apron and becomes a traveling rabbi, and at that point, things start to change dramatically. Uh, Read in Luke 8, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus doesn't even go out and speak to them. They make a trip. They're concerned. They're apparently left there wondering why he won't come out to see them. Needless to say, it's safe to say they leave with heavy hearts and some concerns The fact is, at this point, Jesus is not being disobedient to mother and father because at this point he has left his father and mother and has cleaved to his wife, his wife being the church, church at this point. Uh, 
But the tension created by their desire that Jesus conform to family standards only increases over time. They understand some things about Jesus, but there's a lot of things they don't understand. And their tension will grow into alarm. Mark 3, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. So the tension that they felt now turns to alarm. Jesus is out of control. It's not hard to feel the tension that exists here. They have concluded that he's crazy, and they come to take him away, but he he refuses. It's not hard to imagine the tension that this family is under. This is a small community. Jesus is raising a stir. His family is concerned. And a lot of neighbors let them hear about it. Their life is not normal. And at some point, his brothers start to want him to go away, I think. Look what it says in John 7. Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers do not believe in him. It sounds at some point that they have good motives. I'm not sure that they do. It's really troublesome having Jesus in the house. It's made wreckage of their family life. They can't have a normal family. There's concerns for him. Um, I think we can sympathize, can't we, with the uncomfortable realities of family tension, of Jesus' relationship with a mother where he both feels connected to her and doesn't feel connected to her. He feels part of the family, but at another level does not feel part of the family. There's a tension that exists. He both feels included and excluded. Max Lucado, and no wonder they call him the Savior, I included it in the worship folder. He's a very gifted writer. And in this description of Jesus' last words, on the cross from no wonder they call him the Savior. He comments on Jesus saying, Woman, behold your son, where he is on the cross. His mother and John, the disciple he's probably the closest to, he establishes eye contact with John and his mother. He goes, Woman, behold your son. And he's not just talking about himself. Here he's talking about John. And I'm going to read, follow along if you care. (coughs) Woman, behold your son. Mary is older now. The hair at her temples is gray. Wrinkles have replaced her youthful skin. Her hands are calloused. She She has raised a household of children. And now she beholds the crucifixion of her firstborn. One wonders what memory she conjures up as she witnesses his torture. A long ride to Bethlehem, perhaps. The baby's bed made from cow's hay. Fugitives in Egypt. At home in Nazareth, panic in Jerusalem. I thought he was with you. 
carpentry lessons, dinner table laughter. And then the morning Jesus came in from the shop early, his eyes firmer, his voice more direct. He had heard the news John is preaching in the desert. Her son took off his nail apron, dusted off his hands, and with one last look said goodbye to his mother. They both knew it would never be the same again. In that last look, they shared a secret, the full extent of which was too painful to say aloud. Mary learned that day the heartache that comes from saying goodbye. From then on, she was to love her son from a distance, on the edge of the crowd, outside of a packed house, on the shore of the sea. Maybe she was even there when the enigmatic promise was made, anyone who was left mother for my sake. Mary wasn't the first one to be called to say goodbye to loved ones for the sake of the kingdom. Joseph was called to be an orphan in Egypt. Jonah was called to be a foreigner in Nineveh. Hannah sent her firstborn son away to serve in the temple. Daniel was sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nehemiah was sent from Susa to Jerusalem. Abraham was sent to sacrifice his own son. Paul had to say goodbye to his heritage. The Bible is bound together with goodbye trails and stained with farewell tears. In fact, it seems that goodbye is a word all too prevalent in the Christian's vocabulary. Missionaries know it well. Those who send them know it too. The doctor who leaves the city to work in the jungle, jungle hospital has said it. So has the Bible translator who lives far from home. Those who feed the hungry, those who teach the lost, those who help the poor, all know that word goodbye, airport, luggage, embraces, taillights, wave to grandma, tears, bus terminal, ship docks, goodbye daddy, tight throats, ticket counters, misty eyes, write me. Question. What kind of God would put people through such agony? What kind of God would give you families and then ask you to leave them? What kind of God would give you friends and then ask you to say goodbye? Answer. A God who knows that the deepest love is built not on passion and romance, but on common mission and sacrifice. Answer. A God who knows that we are only pilgrims and that eternity is so close that any goodbye is in reality a see you tomorrow. Answer. A God who did it himself. Woman, behold your son. John fastened his armor on Mary a little tighter. Jesus was asking him to be the son that a mother needs and that in some ways he never was. Jesus looked at Mary. His ache was from a pain far greater than that of the nails and thorns. In their silent glance, they again shared a secret. And he said goodbye. The tension doesn't just rise from what Jesus does. It rises from what he says. At this point, we'll look at not just family ties, but ministry ties. Look what it says in Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be his disciple. How do we make sense of a statement like this? It seems to flatly contradict the command to honor mother and father. It seems to flatly contradict the command to love your wife. It's hard to reconcile honoring, loving, and hating. 
frankly, the explanations that are offered most often seem weak, seem weak to me. And what you hear is, well, the line, everybody, you have to be willing to hate your mother and father. You have to be willing to. You don't, and again, I hear that. Or the level of devotion, you have to love God so much that by contrast and comparison, what you feel towards your parents is hate. Frankly, that, that, that seems to diminish the impact of what Jesus is saying. I think his words land with more force. They do. I, so, what, what, what's going on here? I think there might be something I'm going to suggest, uh, something to keep in mind. Jesus, uh, at age 12, was a theological prodigy again. And as he grew up, even though we don't know how formal an education he had, he most certainly did, everybody in that time, that he grew to be a rabbi. And understanding a little bit about the levels of education, we talked about this before. In Israel, there were three levels of education. The first was Bet Sefer. Six through 12 Jewish boys and girls would begin their education in the synagogue. Their text was the first five books of the Bible, and their goal was to memorize it. Most likely, Jesus would have gone to Bet Sefer, and he would have done that, memorized the first five books of the Bible. They already knew that even at age 12, that he was far ahead. So he had the eye of rabbis and teachers of the law. The next level is Bet Midrash. This was only for those who indeed memorized the first five books. It was from age 13 to 15. This is the, the, the education Jesus is about to head into when he heads into the temple. Um, uh, they continued studying, memorizing the entire Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Old Testament. That's what they memorized. So first they memorized the first five books. Then the rest of the Old Testament. That's quite a feat. Um, very few were selected for this pursuit. Very few had it in them. Jesus probably did. Actually, he had it in him. But he. Then the final level was Bet Talmud, which was the longest in duration. It went from age 15 to about age, interestingly, 30. 30. Between those ages, uh, what you did is you must be invited by a rabbi, and if selected, you would begin a process of grooming that would lead you to become a rabbi about at age 30. Who was Jesus' rabbi? Father. He had a personal education. He was homeschooled. And then he became a rabbi. When Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We can make some general application to Christians in general. When Jesus talks to his disciples and tells them about the standards, they are adhering to him as disciples adhere to a rabbi. He's not issuing an invitation broadly. What he's doing here, he's talking to those who are graduate-level students, his apostles. He's saying, okay, here's the deal. If anyone wishes to follow me, bind to me as my disciple and me as his rabbi. Here's, here's what's going to have to happen. 
You're going to have to leave mother and father, wife and kids, field. Not just be willing to. John and James left their mother and father with their nets in their hand. I raised you, James and John, to be fishermen. Where are you going? We're going with Jesus. What? What, what, what do you mean you're going with Jesus? Who's going to do the family business? I raised you to take over this when I left. What, what, what is he doing? Go get him. We're going to be with Jesus. Difficult. Family ties pulled. I don't think Jesus is just declaring something that to be all of us willing to do. And again, we can make some application. But I think he's talking specifically to apostles, graduate level students. Um, They left their houses and occupations to follow him. I think Jesus indicates that the painful impact of having to leave home to follow him is part of the package. Um, look what he says in Matthew 10. He's speaking to his 12 now. He has them gathered. He's just talked to them about something. Listen to what he says. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn... A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. How does Jesus understand that? Because he experienced it. He experienced it. I think your brothers wanted to send him away. It's too much trouble. I think Jesus understands what family tension feels like. He came to experience it because what he understood is that when he called out individuals to follow him, both disciples and followers, their families were not going to like it very much. Would you agree with me? You grew up in a Jewish home. The first converts were Jewish. You went to school from Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, Bet Midrash to be a good Jewish boy and girl. And when Jesus called out the initial followers out of Jewish homes, their moms and dads did not like it very well. And you know what Jesus could do? He could say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly what it's like to see them look at you with both comprehension and unbelief. What do you mean? This is not what our family does. Go get him. John, get him. He's... Jesus says, I know exactly how that feels. He came and experienced it firsthand. By the way, that's why he came into a womb. He could have come at age 30 into the world. He could have come whenever he wanted. He came in order to experience some of the tensions that he would have to walk with people to help them deal with. So he could sympathize. Um goes on in verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus tells them he's going to throw their family into turmoil. He says, 
I didn't come to, I come to bring a sword. Now, just so you know, when he's saying, don't think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword, he's not just going to allow family problems. This is more direct. He's going to take and the virtual equivalent of a sword in the family and go, whack! And they are going to experience a turbulence and a tension that he experienced, that they would experience, that those they called and walked along would experience as well. It was intended. See, the disciples and the, those that followed him, they had great privileges and great responsibilities. They had greater burdens and greater sufferings. This was Paul's experience as well. Let's just read through this. I, I gave you a couple articles. Um, this was from Vase for Grace. Um, Paul understood this. I think that, would you, would you agree, Paul was exposed to some things by Jesus that he knew things that, astonishing things. He wasn't even able to talk about. You know what, though? As I look at his life, I'd like to know what he knew. I'm not sure that I would want to go to the school he went to to learn those things. We tend to see knowledge as a wonderful thing. Knowledge has responsibilities. And what Paul would say, his call to be an apostle is directly related to sufferings, probably with his family, certainly with his Work. The Pharisees that worked with him didn't feel very good about him going from being a church persecutor to a church advocate. Doesn't it seem like those who follow God closely end up experiencing tension, especially those in some form, and again, not just, but with those at that time who were called into vocational service. Again, James and John left the family business to be itinerant evangelists like Jesus. And for them, for those who were called in a special way to steward the gospel, they had difficult lives. They had great knowledge, but they had difficulty as well. Paul understands this. I'm going to read this. Um, 2 Corinthians 4. This is from, from Corinthians, from the book of Ace for Grace, which is some commentary on some passages. I'll read it. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, Paul writes, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He goes on, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Reproduction is painful. This is true both physically and spiritually. Individuals through whom God conceives spiritual life pay a price for doing so. They are given over to death for Jesus' sake. In the eyes of the majority of sacred authorities in Paul's day, those chosen by God to be his spokespersons received special treatment from God as part of that call. Competing spiritual leaders who were attempting to discredit Paul in Corinth were using this hypothesis against him. They argued that the harsh treatment Paul experienced in his missionary endeavors proved that God was not with him. God would never allow a spokesman to be treated like that. 
When you follow God, you have happy families. You have happy lives. You're treated well. That's what they would have said. Paul countered that those to and through whom God made his light shine had this treasure in jars of clay. To be treated as a jar of clay is to be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. According to Paul, God's chosen messengers do not experience extraordinary treatment. Rather, God subjects them to ordinary treatment to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. The suffering Paul experienced was directly related to his being called by God to proclaim the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Why are you suffering, Paul? Because I was called out from my family to be a teacher of the gospel in a vocational way. And that's the treatment that that occasions that. The fact is that God's spokespersons suffer because they are doing something right, not because they're doing something wrong. Those who God uses to bring sons and daughters to him will experience suffering as part of this process. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In our day, it is not uncommon for those who advance the gospel to identify health and wealth as blessings God gives to those who serve him. It's common to hear appeals such as, follow God and you will experience the same blessings I experience. These are the same spiritual sales pitches that Paul was combating in Corinth. Paul indicated that those to whom and through whom God generates spiritual life will have physical and or emotional scars to show for it. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to orphans in India. Back in the 1920s, Amy rescued hundreds of orphan children, especially little girls that would be dedicated to Hindu gods for use in sexual temple rituals. In 1931... Amy prayed, God, please do with me whatever you want. Do anything that will help me serve you better. That same day, she fell, suffering fractures that would cripple her for the rest of her life. While her growing children had continual freedom to enter her bedroom and share their hearts with their beloved mother, she now had the quiet times that allowed her to write books, poems, and letters that were translated and shared around the world. Her poem, Hast Thou No Scar, captures Paul's heart in this passage. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung is mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who hast no wound or scar? We create problems when we lay on the shoulders of all a burden intended only for the shoulders of some. 
I think some of the harsh things that Jesus said about hating mother and father are directed not at Christians in general, but Christian workers in particular. I think it's a problem when the burden intended for the shoulders of Christian workers is pushed onto the shoulders of those. I don't think Jesus says to individuals who aren't called into vocational ministry, again, hate your mother and father. But some of you called out to do so in a vocational way. That could be the case. Um, I think there's a difference between uh, a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. I've talked about this before. difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd, a good shepherd talks about bad shepherds, and a bad shepherd talks about bad sheep. A good shepherd talks about bad shepherds. The fact is, if the sheep are anxious, why is that? It's because the shepherd is negligent. Sheep require a great deal of care. And a bad shepherd will blame the sheep. And But a good shepherd understands. The sheep depend on a shepherd. But sometimes when the shepherds put a load on the sheep that the shepherds themselves are supposed to bear, it creates anxious sheep because the shepherd is a higher call. And again, why do I point that out? It's... A couple of reasons, a couple of thoughts in terms of, well, okay, Mike, so what? A couple of thoughts. Um, first, in terms of how do we make sense of this? That there is seemingly those who he calls out experience a fraying of family ties that isn't for all, but certainly is for some here, Jesus and the apostles and Paul and some here might even understand that. You are called out of home. Some of you exist within a Christian home. That's a great place to be. Some of us, that wasn't the case. We weren't raised in a Christian home in the same way, and when we departed from the faith of our fathers and mothers, it was not understood very well. I understand that. I understand that. Some of you understand it. If the gospel is going to enter Gentile communities, families would need to be disrupted. If Christianity stayed as a thing for nice Jewish girls and boys, where would we be? We'd be out of luck. If some of those called out had not experienced family tension as they went, don't drop the nets, I need you to do the business here. If they hadn't walked away, we would not have heard. That's one thing. I think another thing is, um, in order to walk with Jewish and Gentile converts, the disciples would need to know what family rejection felt like. They would need to know what it's like to be alienated from family. I remember I told you about Linda at the um, University of Pennsylvania when I went to. The University of Pennsylvania was 60% Jewish. It was during my freshman year there that I heard the gospel in a way that I hadn't heard it before. Um, sophomore year, I ended up identifying that the way I understood God and the things he was asking, a little bit different. I was exposed to the Bible in a more concrete way and started to go into it and created some concern. I went to school to be pre-med. Didn't do very well in that, organic chemistry. 
no chance. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I'm looking at people who probably did well in organic chemistry, but I wasn't one of them. I walked into that classroom and the first day, and this guy had a model of an electron shell. He had models with rings, and, and he was making sense of it. And I just went there, and I was absolutely, I just went there, and I went, and I was one minute into the class and six weeks behind. And I, and I never, rec I never recovered. I, I just remember that guy looking at that electron shell, and he was making sense of it, and I, I wanted to play with it. Here, here. Oh. But it was during those years that I ended up switching my majors and rather than becoming a doctor, sensing, geez, I think I'm supposed to be a missionary to the college campus. Mom and Dad, I checked my major a little bit, and this is what I'd like to do. I'm going to come home after I graduate, and I'm going to go around and I'm going to ask people for money. And I'm going to ask them to support me. And then I'm going to go to a school and walk up to people and help them to know about Jesus. And we spent how much on your education? <laughs> and at that moment, my parents were wise. And although they didn't understand the fact that it's funny, they'd say, by the way, what's Mike doing? And so I was on staff with a organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, they didn't want to say that. So here's what they said that was infinitely better than that, to save face. Michael is selling Bibles in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> How's the other kids doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember Linda. Linda. Linda, when she was a freshman, she was raised Jewish, and I told you about her. Um, but I remember seeing it, and um, I didn't – I could sympathize at the time, but not as much. She became a follower of Christ in her freshman year, and then she went home during the summer. And was it the summer? I think maybe during the second semester. Her parents had a funeral. And they buried her in effigy. You understand what that means? They took things that represented her. They threw it into a tomb and buried it in a cemetery. And they buried the relationship with her. She went home, I believe, during the summer. And she didn't come back to school. She probably rejoined her family. Um, but that's part of the thing that Jesus comes to understand, that he does understand. He knows what that feels like. He knows what pain feels like. He came into a body and can sympathize not only with that, not only with tension, but everything. That's why he came. Brett, worship team, come on up. Um, the thing we have with Jesus that's different from angels. Angels are severe. They don't know what it's like to be in the body. They don't know what it's like to disappoint mother and father. They don't know what family tension feels like. Angels can't sympathize with that. And angels were the, the representatives of God in the Old Testament. Angels spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am so grateful 
that God did not leave the work of representing him to angels. Jesus is our representative. He understands life in a body. He understands family tension. He understands deep emotions. He understands everything. He came to understand everything so he could walk with you. Let's pray. Father, you do um, expose us to things, things that are painful. And you send us out into painful places. The effect of that we have to understand that that's what Brett feels. Understands it. He's come to a place where he identifies and, and he enters into it, and it feels like things that you do. And he's right. You don't come in a sterile place. You enter this world through a womb and then into a manger with cow's hay. And you experience the fraying of family ties. You experience everything so that you can walk with us you can sit with us in those places, and you would have us sit with others in those places. That's what he feels. And he feels that you're there with him. Yeah. Pray that we would be your representatives to move into people's lives and sit with them and reflect you. In your name. Amen. <laughs>